Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. His Highness Prince Aga Khan, Shah Imami Ismaili Association for Pakistan, Audio-Visual Department, proudly presents for the first time the following speeches of His Highness Prince Kareem Aga Khan delivered at the International Congress on Sirat, Pakistan Institute of International Affairs, and at the first award presentation ceremony of the Aga Khan Award for Architecture. We begin with the presidential address at the International Congress on Sirat, held in Karachi on March 12, 1976. Maulana Kalsaniazi, Your Excellencies, Eminent Scholars. When Maulana Kalsaniazi invited me to preside at today's gathering of the Sirat Conference, I felt both trepidation and joy. Trepidation because few subjects could be more awe-inspiring for any Muslim to speak on. Joy as few subjects could give greater happiness to be involved with. Let me add that I am also deeply appreciative of the occasion offered to be by Malana Kazaniazi to meet and greet you all. Few conferences can have gathered so many men of outstanding intellect who have devoted so much time and wisdom to the study of Islam and the life of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. In addressing you shortly today, I will be making a request. 172 eminent scholars from 48 countries have gathered in Islamabad, Lahore, Peshawar, and Karachi to present the results of their research and reflection on various aspects of the life of the Holy Prophet. From all these exchanges, from all the private debates which have preceded and succeeded the presentation of each paper, will have come an immense range of new thoughts, new ideas, a new understanding of the Prophet's life. I sincerely request that you have available to all Muslims a complete printed record of these papers and subsequent debates. In your high intellectual world, many of you are fortunate to have the time to reflect on the great aspects of Prophet Muhammad's life. It is a blessing that many a Muslim would wish for, but due to circumstances beyond his control, indeed the very nature of modern life, he cannot have. The poorer countries of Islam have ahead of them years of increasingly hard work if they wish to progress materially to acceptable standards of everyday life. The richer countries especially those that have new means, will rapidly find that this wealth, blessing that it is, will impose upon them heavy new responsibilities. They will have to administrate this wealth wisely in the best interests of their citizens, but also keeping in mind that they have a heavy responsibility to their less well-endowed, 
brother Muslim countries and indeed to the human race at large. Thus, it is my profound conviction that Islamic society in the years ahead will find that our traditional concept of time, a limitless mirror in which to reflect on the eternal, will become a shrinking cage, an invisible trap from which fewer and fewer will escape. I have observed in the Western world a deeply changing pattern of human relations. The anchors of moral behavior appear have to have dragged to such depths that they no longer hold firm the ship of life. What was once wrong is now simply unconventional and for the sake of individual freedom must be tolerated. What is tolerated soon becomes accepted. Contrarily, what was once right is now viewed as outdated, old-fashioned, and is often the target of ridicule. In the face of this changing world, which was once a universe to us and is now no more than an overcrowded island, confronted with a fundamental challenge to our understanding of time, surrounded by a foreign fleet of cultural and ideological ships which have broken loose, I ask, do we have a clear, firm, and precise understanding of what Muslim society is to be in times to come? And if, as I believe, the answer is uncertain, where else can we search than in the Holy Quran and in the example of Allah's last and final prophet? There is no justification for delaying the search for the answer to this question by the Muslims of the world, because we have the knowledge that Islam is Allah's final message, the Quran his final book, and Muhammad his last prophet. We are blessed that the answers drawn from these sources guarantee that neither now nor at any time in the future will we be going astray. As the demands of time increase, every Muslim will find it more and more difficult to seek for himself the answer to the fundamental question of how he should live his life for it to be truly Muslim. It is men such as you who will have to bring forth the answers, answers which will have to be practical and realistic in the world of today and tomorrow. Rather than let force of circumstance impose upon us through our default in not having suitably prepared ourselves for the future, ways of life which are not or should not be ours, we must ourselves design the path we should tread. In seeking to define what our Islamic society should be in times ahead, 50 and 100 and 200 years hence, we should, I believe, be aware that the Muslims of this world cover such an amazing range of historical, ethnic and cultural backgrounds that a completely monolithic answer may not be found. I am convinced, on the other hand, that we do want to avoid so much diversity that our Muslim countries are in conflict amongst themselves or that they are so divided that they are incapable successfully of facing common enemies, be they cultural, 
religious, national, or otherwise. This is why I so applaud Pakistan for having organized the first Muslim summit conference, and now the Sirat conference. For it is only through dialogue, personal contacts, and continuous exchanges with the great diversity of cultures, knowledge, outlook, and resources can be coordinated and brought to bear fruit for the Muslim world. Let me now return to the question of what Muslim society should seek to be in the years ahead. Islam, as even non-Muslims have observed, is a way of life. This means that every aspect of the individual's daily existence is guided by Islam. His family relations, his business relations, his education, his health, the means and manner by which he gains his livelihood, his philanthropy, what he sees and hears around him, what he reads, the way he regulates his time, the buildings in which he lives, learns, and earns. I cannot think of any time in Islamic history when Muslims have had a greater opportunity to unite and to ensure that the society in which they live is the one that they have defined and chosen for themselves. Not only are all forms of human communication easier than ever before in history, but rarely, if ever, has the Muslim world had such means to ensure its future. Conferences such as this, seeking inspiration from the life of the Holy Prophet, could render no greater service to Islam than to insist than to assist in defining what steps can be taken, where and how, to ensure that our people can live in the years ahead in greater peace, greater prosperity, and in an Islamic society which will not be overrun or simply taken by surprise by forces, pressures, or concepts which are totally alien and may damage us irretrievably. In our search for a solution, I am convinced that we must call upon our own men and women who have achieved positions of eminence anywhere in the world and persuade them to return for us to benefit from their knowledge, their learning, and their work. All too often in my journeys, I have met or learned of outstanding Muslim scholars, doctors, scientists, architects, who have remained abroad, or who, when they do come home, have failed to receive the support and encouragement necessary for them to bring to their nation's benefit their Muslim outlook on key areas of modern progress. Any meaningful human endeavor, any original thinking, any authentic research will require moral encouragement and material support. This we must provide, not only during the individual's initial years of learning, but equally when he leaves the restricted life of his academic center to enter into the wider world of international or national activity. The Holy Prophet's life gives us every fundamental guideline that we require to resolve the problem as successfully 
as our human minds and intellects can visualize. His example of integrity, loyalty, honesty, generosity both of means and of time, his solicitude for the poor, the weak and the sick, his steadfastness in friendship, his humility in success, his magnanimity in victory, his simplicity, his wisdom in conceiving new solutions for problems which could not be solved by traditional methods without affecting the fundamental concepts of Islam. Surely, all these are foundations which, correctly understood and sincerely interpreted, must enable us to conceive what should be a truly modern and dynamic Islamic society in the years ahead. Now, we present the address to the Pakistan Institute of International Affairs, Karachi, March 12, 1976, on the new responsibilities of the nation-states. Mr. Chairman, Excellencies, distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen, let me first say how grateful I am for your invitation to speak to this distinguished audience in Karachi today and for your kind words about my family and about myself. Perhaps I should begin by defining what I mean by the phrase nation-state. First, it is the land area or areas over which a single government exercises authority in terms of internal administration and external defense, and whose frontiers are recognized legally or de facto by other nation states. Its second vital component is a population which by and large freely acknowledges the right of its government to exist and through a dominant language, religion or culture accepts a common national identity. It is a term which originated in the 19th century in Europe, when countries such as Italy and Germany, which previously consisted of dozens of small principalities, became single nations under the pressure either of external force or internal reform. Often it was a combination of both. Most countries of Asia, Africa, and the Middle East are still in the process of forging their national identities after a century or more of colonial rule. Colonies were created whose boundaries took little account of the region's ethnic, linguistic, religious, or cultural origins. The so-called grab for Africa was the most notorious example of this process. But of course it also took place in Asia and the Middle East. The rapid decline of Europe's great colonial empires had a number of causes. Europe's exhaustion by her own internal conflicts, culminating in her last world war, was matched by an equivalent growth of independence movements in the colonies. Movements which began as isolated revolts but which subsequently assumed international dimensions. 
Beginning with the Indian subcontinent and West Africa, this process is now almost complete. And today, only a few isolated pockets of colonial dominion exist as a reminder that for less than 100 years, a half dozen small countries in Europe dominated or indirectly controlled the greater part of the human race. The task of the newly liberated nation-states has therefore been twofold. First, as I have said, they have had to forge and consolidate a sense of national identity among their people. Secondly, they have had to reconcile this identity, small or large, weak or powerful, with the world as it is today, a world which is very different to the one which confronted the nation-states of Europe in the 19th and 20th, early 20th centuries. Whatever the difficulties, however, it is clear that the task of nation-building is an essential preliminary to, many meaningful, to any meaningful influence over the course of events in the regions or continents to which they belong. The emerging nation-states have to be recognized as viable economic units, able to assert their power over a population which is willing to create a new national identity from often nebulous heritages of colonial and pre-colonial dynasties and which is capable of defending itself from external aggression and internal disaffection. Not the least of difficulties facing the new nation-states is a centrifugal trend which can be detected all over the world. The recent troubles in Spanish Catalonia, the tragic story of Northern Ireland, the riots in Corsica, the Flemish-speaking minority in Belgium, the separatist movement in French-speaking Quebec and Canada, are current examples in the West, and the list is constantly growing. The origins of these troubles may be of a religious nature, as in Northern Ireland, or they may derive from linguistic and cultural differences, as in Canada, Belgium, or Spain. They are also very often fostered by hostile external forces whose objective is simply to weaken the central administration by promoting discontent and even rebellion from within. In every case, however, the desire to break away from centralized administration feeds upon the growing complexity of modern government, which in turn produces a sense of remoteness, disinterest, and even cynicism among ordinary people. If this can happen to the long-established nation-states of the West, how much more vulnerable are countries whose frontiers and populations were created at the whim of the empire builders of the last two centuries? Is it really surprising that a huge country like Nigeria should have experienced a civil war when even the United States a nation which evolved far more gradually, had to endure a similar agony before it too could claim full nation statehood. 
If the unity of Canada is still troubled by the ethnic and linguistic claims of French-speaking Quebec, can one really wonder that new nations in Africa and Asia are confronted by similar difficulties? In order to counter such perils, governments are usually compelled to adopt policies which at least respect and acknowledge regional identities, even to the extent of allowing them a degree of local autonomy as well as a fair share of local development resources. America, Federal Germany and Pakistan itself are successful examples. To go any further, however, means the risk of fragmentation and the creation of political and economic units which are too small and too weak to survive. Too much delegation from the center can also be a costly and time-consuming exercise. Decisions are delayed or compromised, and especially among the newer nations, the task of creating a strong national identity among the population is made correspondingly more difficult. Indeed, the growing demands of industrial technology, research, skilled manpower, international trade, and defense all require larger and more powerful national units. It follows that there is little prospect of creating meaningful regional groupings such as the common market unless the individual national units are in themselves strong and viable. In an ideal world it might be possible to devise minimum criteria which would define the parameters of a viable nation-state. In practice, however, it is difficult to see how such parameters could be agreed upon, let alone enforced. We should accept, therefore, that the primary challenge to developing countries is to create an acceptable sense of national identity over a population and land area large enough to comprise a viable political and economic unit. The difficulties are much greater than most people realize, if only because so many of these countries were originally quite artificial creations of their former colonial rulers. These difficulties, however, should be seen in proper historical perspective. I have described some of the centrifugal forces at work in the Western Hemisphere in modern times. It is a matter of fact that none of them has yet been successful. The same could not be said of the former Austro-Hungarian Empire ruled by the Habsburg dynasty, which less than a century ago embraced most of Central and Eastern Europe. In this case, Successive wars and revolutions culminating in the Great War of 1914 broke up a huge, unwieldy central power with its capital in Vienna and gave birth to the new nation-states of Hungary, Czechoslovakia, and Yugoslavia. I mention these examples in a distant continent because it is easy to forget what substantial changes can take place in national frontiers over a relatively brief span of years. Here in Asia, we tend to think of Europe as long-established, rich, powerful, and enduring. Yet in terms of recorded history, 
This Western civilization and the great cultural and democratic traditions it represents is of quite recent origin, has been subjected to constant pressures of change and is still evolving. After the last World War, for example, which all but destroyed the economies of Western Europe, a number of the more far-sighted of its national leaders, faced also by continuing external pressures, perceived the need to create something more permanent than the old-fashioned diplomatic treaty of alliance. The evolution of United Europe, now generally known as the common market, is essentially through a process of restricting or at least coordinating the sovereign rights of individual nation-states in a number of specific areas. These include defense, foreign policy, trade, agriculture, assistance to backward regions, industrial monopolies, accounting systems, weights and measurements, customs and tariffs, crime prevention and technical research. This is by no means a complete list, yet it covers a vast range of national activities and the progress of integration in each sector has naturally varied considerably. Some countries are more concerned with their immediate interests than with the ultimate objective of the Treaty of Rome, which is complete economic and political union. It is conceivable, nonetheless, that some of us may live to see a degree of unity in Western Europe, which will entirely reverse the trends of recent history and create a region of the world where men and women can move at will across the old national frontiers with a common passport, a single currency, speaking two or three languages instead of twelve, and forming a political and industrial unit at least comparable to the superpowers. This trend towards in larger international associations can also be seen in Africa, where you have the East African community, in the Middle East with the United Arab Emirates, and in your own region, the RCD of Pakistan, Iran, and Turkey. Some of these regional groupings may appear to be rather slow in developing, but one must recognize that they constitute extremely ambitious objectives for countries which are still in the process of creating their individual national identity. What then should we conclude from these conflicting currents of history? The forces of cooperation and the counter-forces of fragmentation. What in fact are these new responsibilities to which the title of this address refers? It is clear in the first place that the new nation-states of the developing world are faced with truly substantial burdens. On the one hand, they need to develop strong political institutions which are deeply and broadly acceptable to their peoples in order to consolidate national unity. On the other, they are either waging na nature battles against famine and poverty or learning how to manage sudden and quite unaccustomed wealth. Finally, they are faced with the task of playing their part in creating new regional associations which are efficient, lasting, and worthwhile. Thank you.